0: Marty, I appreciate you doing this. Thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. It's great to be here. I want to begin with your story. It's a unique story. It's a scary story. In a nutshell, which sounds ridiculous, give me
1: your story. In 1988, uh, the summer of 1988, my father's business partner, Jerry Steumann, and him had a falling out over money, which was over a half million dollars. Uh, during that summer, Jerry Sturman threatened my father. My father started to collect money back. And on September 7th, I woke up to discover that my mother was dead. My father was clinging to life uh, after Jerry Sturman was part of a poker game at my house. Within a few hours, I was charged with the murder of my mother, the attempted murder of my father. And within a few months, uh, well, I shouldn't say a few months, When over a year, I was tried and convicted of double homicide and sentenced to 50 years to life on October 5th of 1990.
0: Okay, and what happened after that in the years following?
1: In the years following, we appealed my conviction from the appellate division to the New York State Court of Appeals to the Federal District Court to the Second Circuit Court of way to the Supreme Court. Um, The New York State Appellate Division in 1993 issued a split decision where it started with two judges voting to affirm the conviction, two judges voted to dismiss the indictments against me and freeing me. Unbeknownst to any of us, a fifth judge was appointed to affirm the conviction. Thereafter, the Court of Appeals affirmed in 7-0. Then the Federal District Court affirmed habeas. And when we went up to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, Uh, Judge Greedo Calabresi writing for the court ruled that there was a Batson violation and that my state constitutional rights were violated and I shouldn't be in prison. So we took their decision, went back to the state courts to try to reverse the conviction. And the case was also remanded all the way back down to the Suffolk County District Court on a Batson hearing, uh, which was really fraught with errors because at that time, The judge who was conducting the hearing, his daughter was daughter's boss was the prosecutor who fought to keep me in prison. And the judge nor the prosecutor's office never disclosed the conflict. So he ruled against me. And we lost the Batson issue, obviously. And that started the next process of the post-conviction was reinvestigating my case.
0: And Describe to me the difference, um, my students hear about this all the time, between an appeal and a wrongful conviction, because these things are different and the legal mechanisms are different.
1: So in New York State, you have the automatic right to a direct appeal to the appellate division. Thereafter, you have to seek leave to appeal or permission to appeal to the Court of Appeals. If you lose in the Court of Appeals, you can go to your federal district court. If you lose there, you have to file a certificate of appeal ability to go to the Second Circuit um, Court of Appeals. And if you lose there, you have to file a writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court. When you are litigating a wrongful conviction case, generally in New York State, you're using the post-conviction method of a criminal procedure law, 44010 Avenue, um, raising claims, raising from actual innocence, prosecutorial misconduct, uh, withholding the exculpatory information, uh, other types of claims that are enumerated in the 440 statute. And
0: how did it ultimately come about that you were freed after all these years?
1: So the private investigator that I ended up hiring did something that had never been done, which was conduct an investigation. So if you assess who benefited financially from my conviction uh, and who actually had criminal associates and had committed crimes previously, it was my father's business partner, Jerry Sturman's and Todd. So the private investigator identified Todd Sturman's criminal associates. And at that time, the weak link was Glenn Harris and Glenn Harris was incarcerated. So the private investigator went to Glenn Harris in jail And he said, I've been waiting for this day for 12 years since I was the getaway driver. He identified Peter Kent, Joseph Creeden, and that just kind of started the Pandora's box of all these witnesses coming forward. The problem at that time was that the district attorney was Tom Spoda. Tom Spoda, when he was in private practice, had represented K. James McCready, who was the lead detective in my case, and the Stormans. Uh, We sought to have a special prosecutor appointed. It wasn't appointed. Um, Tom Spodis said that he would set up a protective wall. But the interesting thing was that the detective that he assigned in his office was the only detective in the office that had a prior working relationship with K. James McCready, who was the lead detective in my case. Eventually, the district attorney consented to a post-conviction hearing, After 18 months of witnesses testifying, the final one being Joseph Creeden's son, and we had identified Joseph Creeden as being the murderer, his son testified that his dad confessed to him that he was the murderer. Um, You would think that was sufficient because we had a nun, a priest, people who Jerry Sturman had tried to hire to kill my father, come in and testify. Uh, But instead, Judge Stephen Braslow sent me back upstate. On St. Patrick's Day of 2007, he denied post-conviction relief. After that, you have to seek permission in New York State to appeal the the denial of 440. Um, I had actually four different applications before Judge Braslow. I had an actual innocence. I had a request for DNA testing, special prosecutor, And we also had an application to have the case reviewed because of the change in law of depraved indifference and intentional murder. Uh, The court had granted leave on everything but the special prosecutor. And by the end of 2007, all briefs were filed and the case was orally argued before a four-judge panel in Brooklyn, New York.
0: One of the interesting things about wrongful convictions and the reason they're so few and far between legally is because you have to prove, as obviously you know, not just that there was some misconduct or some legal defect, but absent that misconduct, the result would have been different. How hard was that for you, and how big of a hurdle was that for you?
1: I think it's so at that time, um, the actual innocence standard really wasn't enunciated. It wasn't, wasn't enunciated until People versus Hamilton. But prior to People versus Hamilton, People versus Cole, Vance, I think it was Vance Cole or Valance Cole came out that said you could cumulatively use any prior 440s and any evidence. Any evidence could include, you know, hearsay evidence, polygraph tests. So over the years we had developed a sufficient body of evidence. So we clearly met the standard, but that's not always the case in wrongful conviction litigation. Sometimes it's very difficult to obtain this evidence because It's difficult for defense lawyers to financially, you know, investigate these cases. And quite often the prosecutors are obstructive. Uh, In my case, prosecutors went out and tried to fabricate evidence. They tried to intimidate witnesses. Um, Some witnesses, after they had come forward and provided exculpatory information, got arrested. And the DA's office said, if you testify favorably, we'll proceed forward with your criminal case. If you don't, that case will disappear. Um, even with all the obstacles we faced, we clearly met every standard you can imagine. But it's very hard in high profile cases when there's a lot of scrutiny and there's politics involved. Um, but I think your students would be interested to know that Tom Spota, who fought to keep me in prison, is currently in prison himself. The former Suffolk County Chief of Police, Jim Burke was previously incarcerated and just released. So it's interesting that the people who fought to keep me in prison for, for years longer after they were given exculpatory evidence have recently either been incarcerated themselves for wrongdoing or in prison today.
0: You mentioned and you hit upon this idea of limited defense resources. That's a problem in all of law. That's certainly a problem in criminal law. That's certainly a problem post-conviction. Was that, or is that rather an, an issue that you see in the cases that you
1: now litigate as a lawyer? I mean, absolutely. We, we see this time and time again. I teach an undergraduate class at Georgetown University called Making Exoneries, my childhood friend, Mark Howard. Um, I can't tell you how often our students know more about the case in two weeks than the original lawyers did. And the problem we always face is trying to get competent post-conviction counsel. Um, And that's because some of these cases are 10, 15, 20 years old. The the records are thousands of pages long and it's extremely costly, um, especially for solo practitioners to take these cases on. Uh, I think the ABA did a study years ago and they said, if somebody has been incarcerated, I think 15 years, Post-conviction lawyers could spend anywhere between 3 and $5 million trying to reinvestigate and litigate these cases. And I consistently tell people that if you think on an average year, we probably have 100 to 180 exonerations, which is a number that should scare everybody. Imagine if the billionaires of this world donated one half of 1% of their net worth to defense organizations to increase the number of people doing post-conviction work, how many more exonerations would we obtain?
0: And in your experience, do these wrongful convictions come about because of prosecutorial misconduct? Is it police misconduct? Is it a combination? Is it something else
1: entirely? It's everything. It's prosecutorial misconduct, police misconduct, false confessions, junk science, um, bad collection or preservation of evidence, jailhouse snitches, and sometimes it's also bad lawyers. Um, you know, people, I think, have to really understand that, especially in murder and serious sex crime, they're challenging cases, they're difficult cases, and if you're not prepared to really do the work, you shouldn't do the work. Um, you know, I think they've said that In most of these cases, if you go back and the lawyers were interviewed, many of them said they weren't prepared for it. But the other thing is that even the lawyers that were prepared for it were up against the largest and most powerful law firm, no matter where they were in this country. The government. And the government. And I can't tell you how often I ask groups of students, which is the most powerful law firm in your county? And I could say in the last three years, there was only one person that ever got it right. And that was an incarcerated student in District of Columbia that I recently my guess, the prosecutor's office. I said, how is it that only one person in three years knew it right away? I always get, I don't know. I don't know. I go, yes, you do. It's the government. Subpoena power, arrest power, wiretap power, kidnap power. They hold the evidence, they suppress the evidence, they hide the evidence, they lie, they cheat, they steal, and it's just wrong. It's just wrong because they, if you go to the National Registry of Exonerations, which you think every one of your students should go to, if you look since 1989, how many innocent men and women have lost, I don't know, it's like 25,000 years being wrongfully imprisoned how much of this
0: to some degree falls on law schools to limit the academic portion of their curriculum and perhaps cut off the last year and a half. I understand there's a business model in place. I get all that. Cut off the second year and a half and perhaps turn it into an apprenticeship program where they can work with criminal defense lawyers, organizations and get kind of going um, rather than taking useful, interesting classes in the last uh,
1: year and a half, but perhaps classes Mm. that will prepare them not as well. So it's very interesting. One of the former deans of Torah Law School said, so many law schools in America graduate good students. He said, we don't graduate good lawyers. And he said, the model of law schools needs to change. And one of the ideas was is the last year is more of a practical approach. I think any student who is looking to go into become a prosecutor or a defense lawyer should take a wrongful conviction class, should att- go to the innocence project, to really understand the power that they had. Um, When I taught a wrongful conviction class, half of my students were prosecutors, wanted to become prosecutors. And I reminded every one of those that want to be prosecutors that the power that they held. And I said, realize this and always remember this. If you have a cop or a witness who testifies in one of your cases and you know he's lying, you don't trust them. If you have them in another case, don't trust them either. And do the right thing, dismiss the case. And I found it afterwards, one of my students came to me and said, I did what you said. I dismissed both cases because I realized the power we had as prosecutors. And I prevented somebody from possibly being wrongfully convicted and incarcerated. And they reported that officer to the supervisory people. And it's interesting because I said, think about what you did. You upheld. Your actual duty, which is a duty to seek justice, not merely convictions. And I think the only reason why she did that is because she took my class.
0: Do you sometimes find folks drawing connections between advocating for, obviously, the eradication of a wrongful conviction or prosecutors doing the right thing with anti-police, anti-prosecutor sentiment, right? You're a guy that would have more justification than most to be generally anti-police and anti-prosecutor. Do you see that happening?
1: I do, but I also see what's happening is that people who are intelligent, who've been in the system, can really separate the good ones from the bad ones. Um, The problem is, is the bad ones infect the whole. I'm not anti-police. I'm not anti-prosecutor. I'm not anti-judge. What I'm anti is bad cops, bad prosecutors who don't do their jobs, right? I also think judges need to use some of their inherent power a little bit more. So there was a case from the Bronx from several years ago by the name of Nicholas Morris. Uh, For almost two and a half years, the defense lawyer tried to convince the Bronx DAs, that they had the wrong guy. And nobody would listen to the defense lawyer. They got the trial. The defense lawyer made opening statements. And the judge said, have you told the line assistant everything you said in court today? The defense lawyer said, I've been trying for two and a half years and he won't listen to me. The judge took it upon himself to say, would you consent to a mistrial if I can guarantee you a meeting with the Bronx DA and have the case assigned to new prosecutors? defense lawyer consented. 45 days later, the de- indictment was dismissed against Nicholas Morris. And six years later, the guilty party was actually arrested for that murder. And I think there's two things that were shown from this case, was the defense lawyer was zealous beyond belief, and the judge used his inherent authority to recognize that there was a problem here. And I wish more judges would do that because I think judges do have the the power to stop a proceeding if they know something is just wrong, if they feel something wrong. And I just don't think enough judges did.
0: There was a time when DNA evidence was something that nobody knew about in the legal system. Now, everybody knows about it. Uh, I know you've done work with the Innocence Project How often is forensic evidence a basis for wrongful conviction? Uh, Is it as common as a Brady violation, for example?
1: I believe it is. Uh, I believe it's the smaller group of wrongful conviction issues because you have to realize in some cases there isn't biological evidence. So there's no biological evidence, there's no DNA. But then you also have to realize that when there is biological evidence, the evidence had to be collected properly, stored properly, preserved and maintained. And, you know, if all of those factors have existed, then you have to get the evidence tested. So often though, in post-condition proceedings though, the government will oppose DNA testing. Uh, And and sometimes for the most ridiculous reasons ever, um, because if we believe in the reliability of DNA evidence, there should not be a single prosecutor in America that would oppose DNA testing, especially when you have the defendant who's willing to pay for it.
0: And in many cases, and most cases obviously aren't as serious as yours when it comes to a wrongful conviction case, in your run-of-the-mill, everyday false arrest case, uh, one of the big problems is proving that there was no probable cause. Probable cause is such a low standard in our law. Do you see that problem? It's almost impossible to show that discretion was
1: violated. We see it all the time. Um, One of the bigger issues that we see, one of the, I think, causes that nobody really wants to talk about is that so often there is a very close relationship between law enforcement, cops and detectives, and the prosecutors. And that when detectives or law enforcement bring evidence or witness to the prosecutor's office, they never challenge it. They almost just automatically accept it as God. And I think if anybody looks at all the Scarcella exonerations in Brooklyn, they'll really see how this happens. I mean, Scarcella was this decorated detective, and no matter what evidence he brought to the prosecutor, they just accepted it. And the more times I've actually had the opportunity to work with CIUs around this country, I hear the same thing, that in a lot of these wrongful convictions, and we're hearing a lot from Chicago lately, that the detectives and the prosecutors such a close relationship that there was never a point where anybody challenged or questioned whatever I was brought to them
0: now i teach uh prison litigation courses and in our prisons we claim right that we want to rehabilitate right the purpose of punishment in this country is to rehabilitate in your experience which is unfortunately plentiful Do you see the prison system as a rehabilitative mechanism?
1: So, so, you know, the prison system really, to me, isn't about rehabilitation. You know, they're not called rehabilitation facilities. They're called correctional facilities. One of the problems I've found over the past few years is that so many people think that programs in prison will rehabilitate somebody. The problem is, is what if that they don't need rehabilitation? What if the problem is, is that prior to them committing a crime is where they really need the help of the treatment? Uh, you know, if you actually speak to a lot of people who have committed crimes and you ask them, why did you commit a crime? They would say, well, there was no job house, job training, no job opportunities, no educational opportunities, no mental health counseling. There was no opportunity to get out of that system. In prison, though, the best rehabilitative program were the college programs, and many of them have been eliminated over the years. Um, but the problem is, is that what if somebody doesn't need Rehabilitation. What they then need is some kind of training program that when they get out, they can have a certified training. A lot of those have been eliminated as well. Um, During my 18 years, we had some apprenticeship programs. There was a computer animated design program where it was a four-year program, which was great. Some jails have auto mechanics, um, but some jails, you know, prisoners want to make money so they make license plates or they make a desk. I don't think that's what we need. I think what we need to do is humanize everybody in prison and give them the tools to succeed on the outside if they were never given those tools. Um, one of the things that I've said for years is that if we know somebody is going to get out, we should develop what I would call a transition prison. Because for somebody who's been in prison 10, 15 years, they may not know about credit debit cards, they may not have know how to do a uh, resume, they may not have a driver's license, and the best way to have them reintegrate to society is have them properly be prepared for that experience.
0: Related to that is the issue of mental health. There are places around the country now where crime rates are going up and there are some folks that are blaming this on mental health and the fact that the criminal justice system can't deal with mental health. Uh, What is your experience uh, with folks who need mental health uh, health help that are thrown in the criminal justice system?
1: They only get worse. They don't get better. Um, You know, my experience, most of the individuals that suffered from mental health conditions were overly medicated. Um, They were were transformed into zombies. Uh, And the second part was, is that those who wanted to seek mental health care either through a social worker, psychiatrists or psychologists, were always fearful because they always feared that whatever they said wasn't going to be kept confidential and that it would affect them somehow either on parole or, or, you know, for parole release or in their programming. Um, But the bigger issue is that why are we waiting until they're involved in the criminal justice system? We should be addressing this way before they end in the criminal justice system.
0: I want to talk to you a bit about the death penalty, Right because it's connected a whole lot to wrongful convictions, right? There are folks around the country that say that, uh, who support the death penalty, will say that they do it for the most heinous of crimes. There have been convictions like yours that have been overturned. There have been convictions where folks have been in for nearly 30 years. Um, How do those two discussions merge?
1: The death penalty is not a deterrent to committing crime. It should not exist. Um, we have executed innocent people. We have wrongfully convicted people in some of the death row. Many lawyers who over the years who have actually tried to defend death row clients are not prepared for it. We see this time and time again. If you ask people who have committed murder or are guilty and you say, were you ever considering the punishment? They'll tell them no. They don't care. The other thing is let's understand the cost to the system and the emotional toil to everybody involved. And really, what's a more severe punishment? Death or life in prison? Death is easy. Uh, Timothy McVeigh waived all of his appeals and he ended his case very quickly. But let's also think about this. There was a case where, I think the defense name was Armrain or Amrain, He was facing the death penalty and he fought to get the death penalty, which is a very odd thing. But he knew in his jurisdiction, if he got the death penalty, he was guaranteed appellate lawyers and post-conviction lawyers. But if he got life, he wasn't going to get it. And his, what everybody thought was a little bit of crazy logic, ended up helping him get exonerated. We should not have a system where individuals are thinking that getting the death penalty will save their lives.
0: I wanna finish up more with a philosophical question than a legal question. Um, your story is a scary one, right? But it ends well, right? You went to law school, you're a lawyer now, not that it's ended, but you know what I mean. What would you say to folks, uh, not just prisoners, but in general, folks who have been down and out, find themselves in a tough spot?
1: You know, it's interesting. I introduce myself now as I'm the Peter P. Mullen Distinguished Visiting Professor at Georgetown University. Uh, Starting in January, I will be an adjunct professor at Georgetown Law School. I am an adjunct professor at Torah Law School, and I'm also an exoneree. But I went through hell to get here. If I can achieve this, so can everyone else. Um, Life creates obstacles for us. And I think we're defined by how we deal with those obstacles. Um, but I also think that those who face obstacles can succeed, can have an impact on society beyond anything they can realize. Um, we, this last semester, a student raised the question uh, to another exoneree, would you, be, you know, would you ever change what happened to you no, knowing what you've accomplished today? And I never really thought about it in my life. And I said, if I didn't go through what I went through, all the innocent people that I've helped walk out of prison or be instrumental in that would still be in prison. My students have gone on to work at the Innocence Project, wouldn't have been involved in all of those additional exonerations. People who I helped when I was in prison could potentially still be in prison. So I would never want anybody to go through what I went through. But I would say everyone who is a been involved in some kind of obstacle or struggle, find your path in life to make an impact, make a difference. Um, so often I hear, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not this, I'm not this, what can I do? And I tell everybody, there's always something you can do, even if it's sharing a post on social media to educate people about problems, if it's you know making people understand the power of the prosecutors, making people understand that prosecutors are elected officials. You know, if you end up serving on a jury, don't accept everything that is told to you, question it. You know, really understand what is beyond a reasonable doubt. There's so much more that we as a society can do to make the criminal justice system better. And I think a lot of it has to start before someone was ever charged with a crime But once they are charged with a crime, there's so much more we can do as prosecutors, as defense lawyers, as cops, as experts.
0: Marty, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you.